I used to have to shoot slides with a film camera and mail those. Like one time I mailed them from Bangkok to some editor in New York, you know, talk about being worried about the mail making it or not, you know? And then, <laughs> um, you know, I was writing for magazines back then cause that was the only thing you could do. You know, you wrote for magazines or you wrote for newspapers or you put out a book, like it had to be physical. Um, and then after the internet came along, you know, there was still a transition time there, but eventually, we got to the point where blogs started happening and that's when I really started down the path of becoming a full-time travel writer. It took a few years, but, um, I started my first blog in 2003, which, you know, there were maybe five or 10 other budget travel bloggers and we all knew each other, you know, but now there's probably two or 3000 of them out there. What's up, you guys? My name is Mikko Karshavsky, and welcome to another episode of That Remote Life Podcast, where we hear from remote work experts, digital nomads, and location-independent entrepreneurs so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by a travel writing legend, Tim Leffel. Tim has been a travel blogger since the early 2000s and is the award-winning author of The World's Cheapest Destinations, Travel Writing 2.0, and a book on living abroad long-term called A Better Life for Half the Price. He's also the editor of the narrative web publication Perceptive Travel, which was named Best Online Travel Magazine by the North American Travel Journalists Association and Best Travel Blog by the Society by the Society of American Travel Writers. He has contributed to more than 50 publications as a freelancer and runs five online travel magazines and blogs. He's also the editor of the Nomadico newsletter, which he co-founded with Kevin Kelly and publishes tips for remote working travelers. During this episode, Tim and I talked about why he decided to set up a home base in Mexico and the pros and cons of living there as a U.S. expat, how travel writing has changed over the years, the realities of travel writing as a business, and Tim reveals what he would do if he was just starting out and wanted to become a professional travel writer today. But before we jump into the interview, make sure you subscribe to my newsletter, Remote Insider, where every Monday I share the most important developments in the areas of remote work, online business tech, and the digital nomad lifestyle. It has been called mandatory reading by other subscribers, and if you enjoy this podcast, I guarantee you will also love being a Remote Insider subscriber. You can subscribe to that at thatremotelife.com forward slash remote insider. That's remote insider, all one word. Finally, if you haven't left a review of the show already, please consider leaving one wherever you listen to podcasts. I would greatly appreciate that. You can do that by going to ratethispodcast.com forward slash TRL. And don't forget to share, to share this episode in, on Instagram and tag me at Mitkoka. That's M-I-T-K-O-K-A. Thank you so much if you decide to leave a review. That really, really helps us climb the rank boards and attract new listeners. So I would greatly appreciate that. But all right, you guys, without further ado, let's dive into this awesome conversation with Tim Leffel. All right, Tim, welcome to the podcast, man. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me on. I feel like I've uh, heard your name for a long time and it's glad, good to be chatting with you. Well, yeah, we were just saying this before we re hit record. Uh, first of all, likewise, uh, I feel like I've heard your name from so many friends of mine since we 
since I started traveling and got involved in this world. So yeah, it's a pleasure to finally meet and people are like surprised that we don't know each other. And especially with how much time we spend in Mexico, I can't believe that this is the first time uh, we're overlapping, but it's a pleasure to have you on here. Uh, let me ask you this, just because you're, you know, I just mentioned Mexico. You're uh, based out of Guanajuato, Mexico uh, at the moment. Um, for people who don't know who you are, by the way, you are, I think, one of the most like prolific travel writers and bloggers um, that you know I'm aware of. I mean, you've been doing this since like a very, very long time. So I'm curious, especially with how many places you've traveled to, uh, I just wanted to ask right off the bat, you've been all over the world, but you chose to set up shop in Mexico very quickly. Like, why did you decide to do that? You know, I think all of us that are uh, world travelers kind of every time we land someplace, we're kind of thinking in the back of our mind, hey, could I live here? <laughs> you know, or do I want to <laughs> just like spend a week here and be done? Like some places really just kind of speak to you, you know, and this was a place that really spoke to me. I'm in Guanajuato, Mexico. It's at about 6,500 feet. So the weather's awesome all year. It's really, you know, clear blue skies and cool nights and warm days. And um, but it's also like one of those colonial cities where um, most of the buildings are as old as America, you know, <laughs> like it's, uh, you know, it's fun to walk around and see um, three or 400 year old buildings around you. And it's a very pedestrian friendly city. So those are the big reasons. But the other one is we kind of wanted to go to Mexico because we wanted to stay somewhat close to the U.S. And I'm, you know, about to take off for Thailand. And I know from talking to people who live there, what a pain in the rear it is trying to run a business from there mm -hmm. because the time difference is so much. And then we looked at places like Argentina and I really like it there, but man, that's a long flight, you know, <laughs> to get down there. And then, you know, if you got to come back and see relatives or go to a conference or, you know, go to a wedding, whatever, um, it's just a long way back and we've still got relatives in the States. And so we wanted to be relatively close and, it's it's easy and relatively cheap to fly back and forth between the U.S. and Mexico. Yeah, and Guanajuato is his like kind of popularly known as the most colorful town in Mexico, right? Or that did we just make that up when we? No, were no, it's true. They yeah, you walk around here and lots of houses are painted really bright colors on the hillside, so it's kind of a cool look. Yeah, it's uh, so my wife and I, Sarah, we were there for a month ago, suddenly before we hit record, and it is a really cool town to live there. The thing that I kind of like, I, I couldn't see myself living there because my wife and I do the exact same conversation where we, we, we get somewhere we're always like, uh, is this the next place? You know what I mean? We always have that <laughs> conversation. But what people don't know about Guanajuato, and I certainly did not know until I got there, was the tunnel road system network, where if people aren't aware of this, essentially the, the city's built on top of like, old silver mines if i'm not mistaken and they've been a lot of those mining tunnels have now been reused as the road network for the city so it's like if people know you know elon musk's entire like boring tunnel idea it's like you want to see how what it that would look like go to guanajuato but my <laughs> issue with it is it's actually kind of tough to get around town because those tunnels are so old and they're so winding that like, if you want to go from point A to point B, which would take like five minutes as the crow flies, you kind of, it takes like 15 minutes to go around with like a car. And so I was always like, Oh, this is such a mess in terms of like getting around town, but it's a beautiful, beautiful city. Yeah. I should say, uh, I don't have a car here. I don't really need one. And so, um, I'm just letting the taxi drivers navigate those tunnels, but um, yeah, some of them aren't that old. Like the one that goes through the middle of the city is, but a lot of them uh, 
were just kind of like uh, ways to keep the traffic out of the center because, you know, the mm. old historic part of the city is not built for cars. You see that all over Europe, too. You know, they were built for different times for walkers and horses, maybe. <laughs> so, um, you know, it was, it was a way to keep the traffic out of the center, and which makes it great if you're a pedestrian, you know, you're not dodging cars all the time. Yeah. So like I mentioned me when we hit record, um, you've been a travel writer for a very long time. And it was actually very interesting because um, I was reading an interview with you on uh, Rolf Potts's website where he asked you about, you know, how, how things have changed in the world of travel and in travel writing specifically since you got started to then. And I was reading your response and I was like, oh, it's interesting. Let me see when this was published. And that was published in 2010. And it already, you know, you're already talking about how much things had changed from when you got started. And that was, you know, published in 2010. So I'm kind of going to ask the same question that Rolf asked you on, on, on in that interview, which is how has the travel world and the travel writing world changed since you got started, whether that's for the better or for the worse, because I know that in that time period, uh, when you got started, right, there was, you had to take like film cameras and that kind of stuff. You want to take pictures. So I'm kind of curious when you look back at your career, do you feel like the travel writing world has changed for the better or for the worse as now everyone thinks they can be a travel writer? Yeah, I think net it's way better. Yeah. Maybe it's more competitive, but life is so much easier. Yeah. I used to have to shoot slides with a film camera and mail those. Like one time I mailed them from Bangkok to some editor in New York, you know, talk about being worried about the mail making it or not, you know? And then, <laughs> um, you know, I was writing for magazines back then cause that was the only thing you could do. You know, you wrote for magazines or you wrote for newspapers or you put out a book, like it had to be physical. Um, and then after the internet came along, you know, there was still a transition time there, but eventually, we got to the point where blogs started happening and that's when I really started down the path of becoming a full-time travel writer. It took a few years, but, um, I started my first blog in 2003, which, you know, there were maybe five or 10 other budget travel bloggers and we all knew each other, you know, but now there's probably right. two or 3000 of them out there. Uh, but you know, it's also so much easier to make money at it than it used to be. There's just, you know, 20 different ways you can make money as a content creator. Whereas in the old days, you, you know, had to go through that whole querying process with editors and you had to, yeah, physically, you know, send them the article. And it was just a, a long process and it was hard to be working on multiple things at one time and to just stack up a bunch of jobs. Whereas now, if it's your own site, you can write as often or as little as you want, you know, it's, you're in control of your own publishing uh, platform. So what I want to ask as a follow-up to that, and something that I've always wondered with my friends is, because I have a lot of friends that are, that are travel bloggers and many of which, many of whom you know as well. Um, when do you decide to start a new blog, like a new site? Because to me, that's always been this like question of, well, you could have one blog, right? One site that you write about a lot of different things, or you can kind of create content silos. Like you can focus on, um, you know, a, a specific destination or a specific type of travel, like budget travel, luxury travel, whatever it may be. And you have a ton of different blogs and publications that you write for or that you yourself even own and, and kind of manage. What is that process like for you, that decision process of deciding to start a new a new website versus just, you know, maintaining like one main one? Like, I'm just kind of curious how you think about that. 
Well, there are advantages to both. You know, if you if you have just one blog, you can really concentrate on it and get everything done that needs to be done. But I always worry about that, you know, eggs in one basket thing. And so I've always tried to diversify both in where my income's coming from and just the different kinds of blogs, because it's interesting to me, you know, we go through these Google algorithm updates as publishers where they're always changing how they rank sites and they're becoming more frequent. Now they're like every few months. And since I have five sites, half the time, like what will happen is two of them will go up, two of them will go down and one will stay the same or like some, you know, version of that. So um, I do feel like it's protecting me a little bit. But also if that one that was going down was my only site, you know, that's pretty depressing if you see your traffic drop by 30 percent and that's the only one you've got. But um, I basically just launched things over the years as I saw a hole in the market and um just one example I'll use is one I sold. I, I had a site called Practical Travel Gear, and it was me and three other reviewers, and we were basically reviewing things that normal travelers would buy and use. So, like if you look in Outside Magazine or something like that, they'll have these like two thousand dollar jackets and you know six hundred dollar ski boots and all this stuff, and it's like who buys this stuff? You know, like not not anybody <laughs> I know. And so we were just reviewing, you know, normal luggage, normal travel pants and shoes that people could afford. And it did pretty well. And I eventually sold it for like mid five figures. But that was an example of just how I've gone about it. I could see that nobody else was really um you know, going after that market and doing it consistently. And so I knew we could build up some good traffic and it would be a good affiliate play. You know, you can get people to click on things and buy them and you get a small commission from it. So it went pretty well. And then, you know, I have others that are just, um, you know, focused on a different aspect of the market. And I, that way my blog's not a big, huge mess where I'm trying to cover five different things. And, um, you know, they're more focused that way. And, and I think a lot of people in the pandemic times started a local blog because they were stuck at home, you know, so they said, all right, I'm going to cover my city. And they ended up making more money from that than they were from their quote travel blog. And so um, it turned out to be a good move, not just during pandemic times, like that's continued for them. So sometimes um, being a travel writer who doesn't travel can be a good thing, I guess. <laughs> Sure. Uh, I'm curious about, obviously travel writing, I feel like is one of the, if you ask a, a lot of people what your dream job would be, right? A lot of them would say like, oh, I'd love to get paid to travel. And I feel like that's why so many people, when they first enter this, when they first get this idea of becoming a digital nomad or, or living that sort of lifestyle, one of the very first things that you hear them wanting to do is to, is to start some sort of travel business, to start travel writing, to do this sort of thing. It, it sounds like such a glamorous and sort of like dream ideal job of like, hey, I get paid to travel and write about it. But I'm curious from your point of view as somebody who's been doing it for a very long time, what are the less glamorous sides of that? Like what is, you know, what are kind of like the struggles or the hard things that people who may want to get into that should consider before making that leap? Yeah, it's funny. Sometimes I'm on an assignment and I'm at some luxury resort and there will be people there that I'm chatting with and they'll go, oh man, you have a dream job. That's so great. And these are people that are making like 300,000 a year, you know, and it's like, well, I don't know, you know, do you want to trade places? I don't know if you really do. Uh, but yeah, it's not that glamorous in a lot of ways because 
the stuff that people post on Instagram all looks wonderful, right? Everybody's like sitting by the beach and hanging out and having a great time. But that's like 10% of what we're doing. You know, the rest of the time you're on your laptop sitting in your hotel room because it's the only place where you've got a desk and decent Wi-Fi. And, you know, those pictures of people working from a hammock are just ridiculous, you know, like with the or, sun or, shining. Or the pool. The, or the yeah. pool, yeah. Yeah, sitting by the pool with the sun glaring down. Like, that does not work. So um, that's not so glamorous. And also getting from A to B, you know, flying is a pain in the rear. And I'm about to do a crazy long one where I leave on the 10th and arrive on the 12th because I'm crossing a dateline and like, you know, you're crammed in economy. We're not flying business class, you know, most of the time. So um, that's not so glamorous. And I'm sure you have been on some uh, buses through third world countries that are not so glamorous either, you know, crammed in with uh, lots of people and it's hot and Sometimes people are smoky and you got animals around, you know, it's like, there's a lot of things that don't get reported on that are not so glamorous because they're not uh, things that editors want to hear or readers want to hear. Yeah. Along that note, I also think one of the things that I think about a lot is if you're like, I enjoy traveling because it's almost like a hobby or something that I like to do and I do it when I want to do it. But when I think about having to make a living off of travel and you're kind of being forced to travel, like even if you don't want to, right, you got to get on the plane, you need to go, you got to write, you got to make content because that's where the money comes from. And so I feel like, like, has it, have you experienced this feeling of a, like it's become a job and because of that, maybe you don't enjoy it as much as you did before? Like, have you had some of those feelings where like, you know, you'll hear people talk about how like a passion is turned into something they didn't enjoy because like they had to do it for a living. Yeah. I mean, there have been a few times where I have been on two or three trips in a row that weren't all that exciting. And I started to worry about like, Oh, I'm getting jaded and I'm getting sick of travel. And then I would go do something epic that would (laughs) totally change my mind, you know? And, um, and I was like, okay, I still got the groove here. It's all right. (laughs) Um, but like this trip I'm taking to Thailand, I'm going to a conference and I'll probably write a little bit from a day trip I'm doing there. But the rest of the time, I don't think I'm going to write much about Thailand because Sometimes, yeah, you need to just go somewhere and be a real traveler again and um, just enjoy it. And, you know, one of the things I like about living abroad is you can be in a city and not write about it very much. You know, it's just the place you live (laughs) and and you could take day trips or weekend trips and go somewhere else just for, you know, like a vacation like normal people do. And so that's how I've dealt with it. And I also used to do a lot more press trips than I do now, like those organized ones where they're bussing you around and you go to 10 places in one day. Like I just found that those wore me out and they're not very productive. And so it's got to be a place that I really want to go because otherwise it does feel like a job. Mm. What tips do you have for anyone who maybe listens to this and is considering starting a travel blog in 2022 or 2023? Uh, You know, what sort of tips would you have for them? Somebody who's starting brand new in this world of, you know, social media domination and, and so much like there's so many different options of like, do you start a YouTube channel? Do you start a blog? Do you, do you create it as a newsletter? Like what sort of tips would you have for somebody that's just getting started or considering getting started in this space? 
Well, the main thing is two things, really. Uh, first of all, pick a niche that's not saturated, like find something you're really passionate about, whether that's a kind of travel or a certain geographic area or whatever it may be, and make sure you're not competing with like 10 other big name bloggers that have already been doing this for 10 years because you're going to have a really hard time competing. And also, you know, is it something that you can write 300, 500 posts about, you know, and still stay, stay excited about it? And the second part of that is it's going to take a long time. So you really have to be patient. Like this is definitely not a get rich quick scheme by any means. Like even if you do everything right, it's going to take at least a year before you start making any kind of money from it. And probably like three years before it makes enough to like live full time in a, you know, a normal, normal uh, expenses kind of place. So yeah, if you're going to go live in, Nepal, then you can probably, you know, start making enough money in a year or two to like get by from your blog. But it's not the kind of thing where you start off on a round the world trip and go, oh, I'm going to support myself along the way with this blog because it just takes too long to get traction. Like I said, even if you do everything right, there's just time that's involved in getting indexed in Google, building up an email list, you know, for people to find you, all those things. And and yeah, like as far as the things you can be doing to promote it, that's really kind of overwhelming. There's so many social media platforms. There's, you know, an email list, there's YouTube, there's TikTok, all these things you could be doing. And I think you kind of have to pick and choose about what feels natural to you, what you feel good at, uh, what what you like doing. Like I'm not on TikTok. I think I'm too old for it, but I am on YouTube. <laughs> I'm not uh, I'm not on some of the other platforms very much, but you know, other ones I am. So yeah, you can't do it all. I think you ha- kind of have to pick and choose a little bit, unless you've got assistance. Like I, I do have some help with my social media and that makes a big difference. So once you get to the point where you're making some money, you can hire people. But until you get to that point, you basically have to wear all the hats. So you got to do it all yourself. Yeah, I think... I think most people who are interested in, in getting started in travel writing or some sort of travel blog just don't really aren't many times aren't prepared for how long it's going to take. You know, like my friends of the tropical MBA, who I think that, you know, as well, they talk about this 1000 day rule. Right. And it's like a yeah, thousand days. of Like accurate. you said, it's a thousand days. If you know what to do, right. Like, you know how to like reach out and get backlinks and how to like, but there's, more than likely you're going to make mistakes and like learn from them and you need to be ready for that. And I see so many people who tell me like, all right, I want to become a digital nomad. I've started a travel blog and now I'm leaving. I've quit my job and I'm just always like, oh boy, like, okay, like, let's see how this goes. Right. Like, it's just good. I'm telling you, it's going to be a mess, you know? Uh, so yeah. It's, yeah. Ideally it's, you do, you start it while you're working a real job where you've got a salary and it's just a side hustle. And, you know, nobody's going to be reading those first six months of posts anyway when you put them up. So, you know, just use that time to get better at it and uh, find your footing. And then, you know, by the time you do quit your job, you'll at least see that there's something coming in and you've got some traction. Mm. If you had to start over right now, like knowing everything that you know over the many, many years of travel writing that you've been doing, all of that was gone but you could start over now kind of like fresh. How would you do it? Would you do it the same way? Would you maybe say like, hey, I'm not going to do a travel blog. I'm going to start like a YouTube channel. Like I'm just kind of curious because sometimes you have to like, I feel like make the decisions like you've already laid a lot of groundwork on certain things. So even if you know that that's not like the optimum option, 
you know, you're going to say like, I'm going to do this because there's so much built up now, like in that space. So I'm curious if you had to start fresh, how would you do it? Well, if I were in my twenties, I'd probably go more into video than I ever, than I ever did because, you know, that's where a lot of eyeballs are, especially younger eyeballs. And so, you know, you probably want to go where they are. And if you're good at that, if you look good on camera and you're natural at it, um, you could probably make money faster doing that. Um, just, just because you can, if you get a good following, you can line up sponsorships and that kind of thing. And it seems like it's a lot easier to get traction quickly on TikTok, for example, than it is with a blog or even a YouTube channel. So that's an option we didn't used to have that you have now. But I still think a blog gives you way more options long term in terms of, you know, how to make money because it's a real platform. You know, you can you can make money from advertising, you can make money from affiliate ads, you can, you know, make money from direct advertising or sponsorships, you can monetize your email list, you know, there's there's just a lot of income paths. You can write a book and, you know, promote that on your blog. And if you're a good speaker, you could even use it to, you know, promote that career. So I think there's ways uh, there's people leading tours. Like I keep thinking of all these things you could do if you have a blog, you know, and it just makes it easier. I think to, to branch out into other things. If you, if you do have a blog and, and, you know, maybe younger people are looking at video more than they're looking at text. I mean, I've got a daughter who thinks YouTube is the internet, you know, like that's where she's spending almost all her time. That's where she searches for answers. What, for me, like I would never search for answers on there unless it's something like I need to see how people are doing it, you know. Um, but for them, that's perfectly natural. That's where they go for answers. And so, you know, that's good. But there's still a lot of people reading text and searching on Google voice search and, you know, typing it in and whatever. And they're going to land on an article. And, you, and a lot of times that article's on a blog. So you just have some built in advantages there. But yeah, I mean, it's, what would I do differently? I think I would definitely make sure I was super focused on a niche and maybe it's not what I'm doing now because my first blog is called the cheapest destinations blog. And it's basically about cheap places to travel, how to travel well for less and living abroad. And, you know, that's fairly broad, but I do okay. Cause it's been around for a long time, but I think if I were starting new, I would have to focus even more than that. And um, I've got one site called Hotel Scoop that's all individual hotel reviews. And man, that's a brutal area to be in. Like if I were starting over, I probably would not start that site because you're competing with Expedia, TripAdvisor and, you know, Travelocity and everybody else out there that has any kind of hotel content. So it's really tough to rank in the top five for anything um, so I probably would not start that site, <laughs> but the way, the way that came about is I wrote for this other site that got bought by Groupon. I was writing for them as a freelancer and they, they said, okay, Groupon just bought us and go get your articles if you want to keep them because we're shutting everything down in two weeks. Like they just got rid of the entire site. And so I reached out to the other writers and said, I'm going to just copy this thing. Anybody you want to come join me? <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> if so Groupon's that, buying, I'm going to start selling. Huh? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I probably will sell it someday and it will be worth something, you know, but uh, it's just uh, if I had it to do over again, I don't know if I would go down that path because it's, if you're going after something where you have major, major companies with big bucks competing with you, then that's a that's a tough thing to do. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of people write about budget travel, but then I think about it and I'm 
I always think, wouldn't you want to be writing about luxury travel more because that's where there's more money being spent? So you're technically like you're making the same percentage, but from a bigger pie, right? Like, wouldn't you want, I always think about that. Like I see so many like budget travel blogs and I'm always thinking like, don't you want to be playing in the like luxury space or am I missing something? Yeah. I think people do that though, because that's how they're traveling, you know, and it comes naturally and, but I actually do have a luxury site. Um, I use a pin name for it, my first and middle name, so I don't have a confusing Google profile. But it's called Luxury Latin America, and um, it does pretty well. And that's probably the one I'll get the most money for when I start selling things. But um, the funny thing is, at least 10 years ago, I bought this domain called Luxury Southeast Asia that I never did anything with. I'm still sitting on it. <laughs> and so uh, if anybody wants to buy a domain for cheap, uh, let me know if you want to start a luxury site on the other side of the world. There you go. You're like, you know, my wife and I were just talking about this uh, a few weeks ago about how um, we met like right as Tinder was coming out. So we didn't have that much experience with like the dating apps, but we always joked about the fact that if if we were to meet now and, you know, they have these like prompts to see if you like are a match or whatever, the prompt that we would absolutely need to have is like, how many domain names do you have? Uh, because depending on that, we're going to know if we're a, we're a fit or not, because between the two of us, we own so many, you know, you like, you get an idea, you go out and you right. buy a domain, right? Like that's how, that's how you do it. Um, yeah. I'm curious, how, how do you think the remote work revolution since 2020 has affected travel? Like, what is your viewpoint on that? Well, it's good and bad, of course, but I think once again, net it's, it's good, um, in the aggregate, I think you're reading these news stories now that I think are kind of like clickbait kind of things more than anything where they're saying, oh, housing prices are going up because of all the remote workers, you know, and they're talking about Mexico City, like a city of 20 million people. And they're saying the rents are going up because a few digital nomads moved there, which is nuts to me. Yes, it can go up in a certain neighborhood like Condesa, like, you know, if there's like 50 programmers from Silicon Valley moving there. Yeah. It's going to drive up rents in that 20 block area, but it's not driving them up through the whole city, you know, same with Lisbon and some of these other Barcelona, these other places you're hearing about. So I guess the, what has changed that maybe is being viewed negatively by the media is you've got digital nomads with money moving to places. And that's what has changed, you know, since like the pre pandemic age, there just weren't that many remote jobs back then as there are now you know, high paying jobs, like most of us that were location independent, were doing some kind of work that was um, our own deal. You know, we were a freelancer or we were a blogger or we were some kind of, we owned like some kind of agency, you know, that could be done remotely with four or five people. Whereas now you got people like earning real salaries that are living abroad. And, you know, if they are coming from Silicon Valley and they're used to paying $6,000 a month for rent or they're coming from New York or London and they go somewhere cheap, you know, it's like a, being in a candy store when they're looking at rent prices, you know, you can't blame yeah. them. <laughs> I like to joke that if you, you know, before COVID, if you were to look at social media, just based on the number of times and in the number of posts that you saw the phrase, six figures you'd assume just that just being a digital nomad meant you're making like a hundred thousand dollars plus but it was just mostly fluff and then yeah. now you know most digital nomads that i know pre-covid were not doing six figures 
Um, now that became far more common the closer we got to COVID. You know, you started seeing like very legitimate businesses start coming up, and you know, really you started seeing like remote job boards. But post COVID, the number of people that truly do make high income and are now able to be nomads is just. I mean, it's just gone through the roof. It's, you know, uh, an astronomical increase. And I do agree with you that I think in some ways those articles or clickbait that you mentioned about like Airbnb kind of driving prices, because I do agree with you, it's in very specific areas. But what I think has is very interesting is that Airbnb prices, right, like short-term rental prices have almost become their own their own like location in some way, right? Like no matter where you look for Airbnbs, it's almost always going to be within the same range. Like even in like cheap locations, unless you're going for like really, really cheap locations, I feel like Airbnb prices, if you're doing an Airbnb, the price doesn't really fluctuate that much. Do you know what I'm saying? Does that make yeah. sense? I mean, it goes up or down like maybe 25, 30%, but it's not like half the price, you know, a lot of times. Although I was just looking, I was looking in Corfu, Greece, and I was looking in Albania, which is like a, a quick ferry ride away. And there it was half the price. <laughs> it's half yeah. the price in Albania that it is in Corfu, even though like they're, you know, uh, you can see one from the other. So sometimes it does work that way, but you're right. Like I just have rented in Argentina and Colombia lately, and they were great deals you know, way better than I could get in the U S but not like, you know, 15 bucks a night or something. <laughs> they were still right, like 50, right, yeah. 60 bucks a night. Like I'm in, like, for example, you know, I was born in Bulgaria, spent a lot of time in Bulgaria. I've had a lot of friends come visit and they're always a little bit surprised because I tell them how low cost it is to live in Bulgaria. And then they look at the Airbnbs and they always say, you know, it's not that much cheaper than what I would spend in like a Barcelona or what, like, you know, it's almost like that price has become a bit more even around the world now, which I think is interesting. It's almost, you know, if you go there and you're like rent long term, then you're going to get the price savings. But Airbnb has almost become this like insulated market in pricing on its own. Uh, and it's very, uh, it's very, very interesting. If you had to kind of guess, you know, looking forward and you think about like the future of remote work and the way that it's interacting with travel and just the way that it's changing day-to-day -day life, what are your predictions for the next 10 years? Well, I think a lot more people are going to leave where they live now and live abroad just because the quality of life is so much better. I mean, you mentioned the Tropical MBA before. They, they did an episode when they were in Barcelona about you know, why isn't everybody living in Europe? You know, their point was, yeah, I remember that. you know, it's so much more pleasant to live there than to live in, you know, Austin or Nashville or, you know, any of these cities that people think of as cool U.S. cities or Portland or Seattle or whatever. It's cheaper to live in Europe and it's just such a better quality of life. You eat better, you walk everywhere, you know, you, you have so many more options for families and for entertainment and all these things where you don't have to get in a car to go somewhere. And I think, as soon as more people start discovering that and their friends start telling them about it and, you know, they start hearing from people they know personally that have done it, it's going to become this, you know, big wave. And I think that's going to be interesting to watch from a social standpoint, you know, both how that affects the U.S. and how it affects the places that these people are moving to. Because, I mean, if you take a salary that somebody needs to live in New York and you put it in a place like, Bangkok or Kuala Lumpur or, um, 
Ho Chi Minh City. I mean, you can live like the 1% in those places, you know, you can live extremely well. And I think when people that are making good money start figuring that out, (laughs) there's going to be this exodus. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's also true for the United States, right? Uh, We were recently, my wife and I were in this small town in Kentucky called Augusta, which is right on the Ohio River, about an hour outside of Cincinnati. And we were talking to this um, local coffee shop owner, and she said they've had something like 50 couples, young couples, move to their small town of like 3,000 people because they work remotely. And they have been able to find really great deals on houses, and they live for like 25% of the cost that they would in like a big city. And the same way that, you know, we're talking about that happening globally and people moving from New York to the, you know, Ho Chi Minh City or Kuala Lumpur, it's happening within the United States as well. And it's very, very interesting to see how that plays out, right? Yeah, and that's an interesting point um, around the world as well. Like we keep talking about Lisbon and Mexico City and these big places, but I mean, let's even use Bulgaria as an example. If you move to Sofia, it's one price. But if you move to Bansko, it's like half of that. And so, you know, if you're willing to look beyond the obvious, which I wish more people would do in these places, then, you know, you can get an even better deal and, you know, maybe just have a more calm life around you, too. I mean, Lisbon is getting more expensive all the time, and that's only going to continue. But it's still a bargain in Portugal if you just expand your horizons. It's a great deal when you get out into the smaller cities and the villages and they're probably happier to have you too (laughs) yeah but it's like why are you moving there right because we had this conversation recently because we were thinking about moving to lisbon then we decided not to and and we decided to set up shopping in caretero for for the beginning of the year but you know the reason why i want to go to portugal is because i want to enjoy lisbon i want to enjoy porto those are like the cities that for me like are the reason why I'm going there. And I've had this conversation with Gonzalo multiple times of like, I get the small town thing, but I don't know. It doesn't quite have that appeal, even if you're saving a whole bunch of money, right? Like what, how do how do you feel about that? Yeah. And it kind of depends on whether you're a city person or a rural person or somewhere in between as well. I mean, I understand that like, uh, this city I live in is maybe 250,000 people if you're counting the suburbs, which for a lot of people would be considered way too small. And I understand that, you know, they're going to be a lot happier in, in Mexico City or Guadalajara. And and I understand why Lisbon has, you know, such a draw you know, or why Barcelona does. But, you know, there's a lot of other great places to live. I mean, let's go to Spain. Like I was just in Seville. That's a real city. But man, I would way rather live there than to live in Um, Madrid or Barcelona because to me that seems much more manageable and um, and I don't know there's plenty of tourists there but it's not just mobbed with tourists like some like Barcelona is and so yeah it's kind of back to that thing like you either feel it or you don't I think you know some places speak to you and some don't and um, if you're a couple you really got to talk that out because you know if one of you really wants to live in a massive city one of you wants to live on a farm you're going to be in trouble (laughs) so we're dancing around this topic of geo arbitrage right of how you can improve your quality of life by by going somewhere else whether it is in the united states in a smaller town or going or going abroad you have a book called uh better life for half the price uh and so i feel like you know we're dancing around the topic but let's like focus on the main on the main thing here what are some of your top tips, you know, from that book or some of the findings that, that you highlight in the book in order to actually get to live a better life or half the price? 
Well, I keep circling back to this feeling thing because there's a lot of things you can put on paper in terms of like finding an ideal place to live, you know, your criteria, your make or break things, but then you really got to get out there. So sometimes I'll get an email from somebody who's like really never traveled at all. And they're like, where should I go live? It's like, how do I know? (laughs) know? (laughs) I'm not going to be able to tell you that. Like you got to go travel around and see what you like and don't like and what you're comfortable with. And, and I've met plenty of those people. You probably have too, that they end up moving somewhere and they're miserable because, you know, they wanted it to be more like home and it's not like home. It's a different country, different culture. And if you don't know that going in or you're surprised by that, then you're going to be in trouble. So the best thing to do is do a trial run, you know, ideally travel around the whole country or a portion of it for a while to see what you think and, and then do a trial run somewhere, rent a, at least rent an Airbnb in a neighborhood, you know, not in the tourist zone and just kind of buy groceries and get things done and um, just see how it all works out and see if the place drives you crazy or if you, um, if you like it. And then, um, yeah, I mean, do your homework, obviously, you know, read as much as you can about any place you're thinking of visiting uh, before you go and just make sure you, you know what to expect. And the last one is just don't buy something right away. Like, you know, that House Hunters International show is great entertainment, but it's not reality. And so there's fake. no way it's you so should go fake. somewhere. Yeah, it is all fake. And just the premise is silly. Like, there's no way you should go somewhere on a vacation and find a house and buy it. You know, like you should be spending at least a year there so you know which neighborhoods are crappy and, you know, which ones will let you uh, have a bar set up next to you and keep you up all night. And you don't know what the housing prices are really are, what, what places are really worth. And so take your time, rent a place first. Yeah. My entire life, not life, my, like my view of the world changed when I found out that house owners international was fake because my wife and I would sit there and would watch it and it would be this amazing, like, Oh my gosh, like we could be doing this. And then we met someone who had been on House Hunters International and they told us uh, the place that we ended up with, we already had. And the other two places right. that we looked at were our friend's apartments. And I was like, what? Like my mind was blown when I found that out. So uh, that was a yeah, sad, sad and, and day often the, <laughs> the quote real estate agent is really some friend of theirs that speaks English, you know, so that they can yeah. put them on camera. And yeah, it's ridiculous. And yeah, people usually have already bought the place before they're ever on the show. And so it it is. Uh, but one thing that's accurate about it is the prices are usually accurate, like what they're actually listed for, you know, so at least it does give you a good sense of what your money will get you in that country. But the rest of it, uh, just treat it as fiction. <laughs> yeah, you know what? You know what I always think about with House Hunters and Nashville after I found that it was fake is that... Um, you know how they'll go into the one of the houses that maybe they don't pick and they'll say something like, oh, I think whoever decorated this is so ugly and whatever. And then you find out it's like their friend's house and you wonder like, how's that friendship doing after, you know, you like you crapped all over their place, you know, on, their, on, on television. It always so, makes me uh, laugh. Yeah. And what else related to that always makes me laugh is they're always like, oh, I hate this color. And it's like, it's just freaking paint. Like you're spending yeah, 300 like grand on a house and you're worried about what color it is. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it, it is great entertainment though. You know, it, it's, it's great. I'll, I'll still yeah. watch episodes from now and then. Uh, let's chat a little bit about Nomadico. So you have a new newsletter. Uh, well, new since fairly recently for you. Six months um, ago. Yeah. 
six months ago. Yeah. So, uh, and it's, uh, a collaboration with Kevin Kelly, who, if people don't know who Kevin Kelly is, um, the, one of the founders of wired magazine, uh, is a very well-known, uh, travel writer, but also tech writer. And I'm curious, um, how did that come around? Like, how did you get connected with Kevin? You know, obviously he does, he's got a lot of things that he's like working on. So how long have you known him? Like, how did that partnership and that product quote unquote come about? Well, the first time we worked on something together uh, was he did an article for me for a site I own called Perceptive Travel, and it's all um, narrative stories from book authors. And he did a story about uh, what it was like backpacking in the 1970s. So I'm kind of old school, but man, he goes way back. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so we worked together on that. But the, the way we met is actually a really funny story. I had my house here in Guanajuato up on Airbnb. Um, and he ended up renting it. Like I, I saw this renter show up named Kevin Kelly and I was like, Oh, that's a pretty common name. But then I saw that the guy lived in, I saw that he lived in California. I was like, man, I wonder if that's the same guy. Like I sent him a note. I said, you know, are you the author of this book? You know, what technology wants and some other things. And he said, yes, I am. And I was like, Oh my God, like what's the chance of that? Like the somebody you know, rents your place that you've actually heard of, you know, you know who they are. So we started a conversation from that and I sent him one of my books and he left one of his here in the house when he rented it. And so that's how we, we got started. But we, we had talked before the pandemic about doing a travel newsletter together and, um, and we just, uh, kind of rattled it around and nothing happened. And then the pandemic hit and it's like, well, this is not a good time to launch something like that. But then, you know, we saw this digital, uh, location independent movement coming up with all these people that were now able to work remotely that couldn't before. So we decided to uh, focus on that instead. So we call it um, tips for working travelers with the point being that, um, you know, a lot of travelers are not working and then a lot of workers are not traveling. <laughs> so uh, this is the intersection, you know, the people that are able to basically go where they want and work where they want. And what is the, what is like the goal for it? I mean, if you think about like, you know, when you started it out, like what, what's the, what is the end game with that? I'm very curious. Yeah. I don't know what the end game is. We're just kind of having fun with it. We just put four stories up each week, you know, that are the kind of the model is um, another newsletter that he runs called uh, recommendo. And um, the, each week, I think it's three of them that work on it. They, they, uh, pick like six things to recommend and they, they can be all over the place. It could be a website, a movie, a book, a product or whatever. So we're kind of sort of trying to do the same thing where we've got things from the news, you know, maybe some country launched a digital nomad visa or one of them just went live, or there's some article out there that is worth reading about remote life um, or uh, a podcast or whatever. But then also, you know, what are some cool little gadgets and tricks and things like that that are useful for, people that are nomadic. And uh, so it's kind of open-ended, but, you know, it is monetized. We make a little money from it. Um, you know, it's also just uh, just kind of a fun thing to share and a way to connect with other people. And we get some good feedback from readers and recommendations. So uh, I don't know where it'll go, what the end game is, but for now we're just along for the ride. Yeah, the the newsletter thing is interesting because I have one that basically has the exact same premise. Uh, so that's that, you know, it's interesting that we kind of have the same idea there. And then I know some other people who have a newsletter with kind of like the same premise as well. And I feel like there hasn't really been like one dominant 
newsletter in this way, the same way that you have like, you know, like you have like Morning Brew or the hustle that was a bit more business focused. And I do think that there is a space here of one newsletter that kind of dominates this remote work, you know, um, traveling workers kind of like field because it's a growing population and there's going to be people who are interested in the news about that and interesting articles about it. So yeah, it's, it's very interesting. We'll see, we'll see what happens. I definitely think there's space for like one or maybe two newsletters to kind of like really grow in size the same way that the hustle did, for example. Yeah. And there's probably room for a bunch of them. Like ours is intentionally quick, short bites, you know, and something that you can read and, you know, less than a minute and move on if you don't want to click on anything, but there's probably room for others that are more in depth, you know, or, or more focused on a specific aspect of remote life. And, you know, who knows? I mean, just the way that thousands of blogs exploded, I think you can have thousands of newsletters maybe. Um, but there's a limit to how much time people have. And there's a few great newsletters I get where I tell, don't tend to get to them until a few days later because I know it's a time investment. It's going to take me a while. So um, they're they're really useful and I'm going to click on things and I'm going to learn something, but I have to do it when I've got the time. So yeah, different ones for different different needs. Speaking of time, I have to ask you, uh, how do you manage all of the things that you have on your plate? Because you write books, you write blogs and manage and edit, you know, uh, blogs, you write newsletters, you, you do so many different things. How do you structure your day? Like, do you have some sort of process for figuring out, you know, like how to, how to schedule your weeks, like your days. I'm very curious about, you know, this topic that I call self-management. How do you approach that? Well, I have gotten pretty good at productivity, I think, and I kind of have this two-tiered system. I have this insane to-do list that's still old school <laughs> on a piece of the paper. Legal pad, each, the legal pad, the OG, yeah. the OG productivity system Just that still works in this day. Because yeah. I don't want to spend more time staring at my phone to figure out what to do. But I also just jot down like three things every day that I really got to get done. And I, I'm not the first person to come up with that. It's, you know, a a hack that a lot of people have mentioned or a trick or a guiding principle or whatever. So, you know, if I get those three things done, then the day's a success. And then I can start going to some of those other ones. And naturally you get thrown off if you get some email and there's a fire you have to put out or whatever. But, you know, generally I'm trying to create content, you know, on a regular basis. And that's, I feel like my main job. And then I've got a few assistants that I manage that take care of different aspects. And that helps a lot. And you can automate some things, um, you know, but I don't know. I try to focus on what's really going to move the needle each day and, and make a difference. And then some of the other stuff has to slide. I think it was uh, in Tim Ferriss's four-hour work week book where he said, if you want to make great things happen, you have to let a lot of little bad things happen. And so uh, I let a lot of little bad things happen on a regular basis. But I've, if I've got some, you know, project that's important, it's going to make money, it's going to, you know, make a difference, then that's what I work on. And then the other things fall in after that. But it is a struggle, like you never completely get past that problem. I don't think if you're managing multiple things, you just have to prioritize. And I'm trying to, I got a travel writing book out that's, um, this, the last edition was in 2016, and I need to update it and do a new edition. And, um, it's been on my plate this entire year and I'm still not anywhere close to done because other things keep getting in the way, you know, and 
um, I need a block of time to like work on nothing else. And so for me, um, transportation time's good for that. Like uh, I never use the Wi-Fi on a plane because that's when I get some writing done. If I've got room, like trains are better. That's the best, you know, when you can be on a train and work because you got a lot more room, you know, a lot more leg room. And Mexican buses are pretty good too. They're but, uh, awesome. People are always surprised when I tell them the Mexican buses are the bee's knees, but they're they're awesome. They're so good. Yeah, you got great leg room and you can really stretch out and they're comfortable. And yeah, so I get a lot of work done when I'm uh, on a long bus trip in Mexico. And a, and a first class bus uh, ticket is like $17 or something. I'm like, upgrade every time. If you're going to take a Mexican <laughs> bus, just spend the $3 yeah, the extra and get one. first class. It's it's worth it. Yeah, it's the best three dollars you'll spend. Um, but yeah, on on that note, like I think um, my mom had this like really great insight uh, where she said, you know, like my parents grew up in in communist Bulgaria, and so they often talk about how they had no opportunity, right? Like everything was figured out for them. You were gonna go study one thing, and you're gonna get one job. Like there was really not a lot of options. And they're, you know for us right now it's there's so much opportunity and especially post covid with remote work like you could like do you want to start a business do you want to work for a company over here that allows you to like there's just so many things that you can do that almost the more difficult question you need to find an answer to is like what do you say no to because that's really going to be you know it's more important for you to figure out like what you say no to and what you don't focus on it and you know kind of like making sure that you focus on the few important things and that's really, really hard. It almost goes like against our nature to say no to things and just like take, you know, like we kind of want to be like, we want to do it all and like, you know, do everything. And, uh, it's, it's tough. Um, but Tim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a lot of fun. I want to be respectful of your time. I know that you're gearing up for, for a trip. So I know that you, uh, probably have some, some, uh, last minute packing to do, but let people know where can they find out uh, more about you? Where can they connect with you on social media? What are kind of like the main uh, destinations you'd like, uh, to send people to? Yeah. So, um, for finding me, my name is, uh, Tim Leffel, L-E-F-F-E-L. And there are fortunately not too many of me, me out there in the (laughs) world. So I'm pretty easy to find on social media. If you just search my name and then my portfolio site is timleffel.com. And that links out to all the sites I run, articles I've written, books, the whole work. So that's the easiest place. Um, my, uh, my books are on Amazon and all that, but my oldest blog that I mentioned is, is just cheapestdestinationsblog.com. That's the only one I run completely by myself. It's all my writing. So that's, um, if you want to just hear me spout off about stuff, that's a good place to go. Um, as far as countries, like, you know, I have this book out called the world's cheapest destinations. It's in its fifth edition now. And so if you're getting ready to set out on a trip around the world and you haven't done it yet, that's a great resource. Uh, we'll save you tons of time because it tells you, you know, what things cost in all these different countries, the pros and cons of each place, why you'd want to go there. And um, it's the book I'd wish I I wish I'd had when I started backpacking around the world, because um, I would have skipped some countries and gone to others if I had really had a good information on how they compare. Perfect. Well, Tim, uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been a blast. I'm happy that we finally did this. And uh, hopefully we overlap at some point somewhere in the world. Yeah, maybe we'll uh, meet up in Thailand or Bulgaria or somewhere else. Let's see. We'll we'll find a place. We'll find a place.